to the High Praises Church podcast. We hope you are blessed by today's sermon. It's kind of crazy to think that uh, just a year ago, around this time, we were kind of in the height of COVID quarantine, that everything had been shut down, our lives had been changed, that life as we know it was just completely and totally rearranged. We were all at home all the time, and it really just had a deep impact on our world, and it brought a lot of problems. And I would say, One of the worst problems it brought, and I say that 100% jokingly, is the problem of the haircut. Like, I don't know about y'all, but when all the salons shut down, that was a major issue. Because maybe the women can get away with it, but the dudes, after a month or so, the hair's growing over your ears, it's starting to get shaggy, it's a little brutal, and you got to find a solution. Like, eventually, it's just bad. And so we were all confronted with this decision. Do we just wait it out and entrust the people who know what they're doing, who've been there before, who can cut my hair, or do I take matters into my own hands and I try and cut my own hair or at least have a spouse or a family member do it who doesn't know what they're doing? Well, I was scrolling on my phone this week and I found a few folks who decided to take matters in their own hands and they got what I call a COVID cut. Can we just look at that first one? Whew, whew. Looks like somebody just put the bowl on their head and just clipped around, the classic bowl cut. Come on, give us that next one. Oh, that one's a little bit more subtle, a little bit more artistic. We've got the little dip there on the left. It's very interesting. Come on, give us that last one real quick. Oh, at that point, you just got to get the bus cut. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just got to, like, just shave it all off. We're just going to start over and see what happens. But it's crazy that being in quarantine and we were all faced with this issue. I need my haircut and what am I going to do? Am I going to take matters into my own hands or am I going to wait it out? And I don't know how long I'll wait, but I'll trust that somebody knows better than me and they're going to make sure my hair turns out way better than if I just do it myself. They were in the middle of that decision. Maybe today you've walked in and and you're in the middle of a decision far more serious than getting a haircut in COVID. Maybe you're in a spiritual decision. Maybe you're in the midst of of a spiritual crisis or a spiritual battle and you're kind of in between two places. Do I take matters into my own hands and expect it to work out good? Or do I wait and trust God that he's gonna come through on time and he's gonna help me out? Maybe today it's in a matter of what Jesus is telling you not to do that you've felt that temptation of that sin you walked away from 20 years ago coming back up, that you've faced a moral crisis or a moral decision at your workplace that you know is going to cost you. What am I going to do? What shouldn't I do? Maybe it's a place of active obedience before God. It doesn't have to do with sin per se, but stepping into obedience, that you've been in the Word and you know Jesus says to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies. You've got that boss or you've got that coworker, you've got that family member and you're struggling. Do I go off on them and give them what they deserve or do I love my enemies? Do I spread the gospel in my family, in my workplace, knowing it may cost me something? Maybe it's a battle of health. Maybe it's a battle in your marriage, a battle with your children that you hear the words of Job's wife saying, curse God and die. What will you do? I've come to tell you this that if you choose to take matters into your own hands when it comes to your spiritual life, 100% of the time, it will come out a 1,000 times worse than a COVID haircut. 
You will make a mess of your life. You and I make terrible gods. But I've come to tell you this, that there is a God who knows what he's doing. There's a God who's fought some battles before. There's a God who's won the victory, and he may not come on your timing, but he will come through, and he will win the victory for you every single time. Do not trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus as Lord. And so today, that's why we're looking at Joshua chapter 3. If uh, you don't know what's going on in Joshua, 40 years prior to the events of Joshua chapter 3, God has set his people, Israel, free from Egyptian captivity. They were held captive under Pharaoh, and he opened up the Red Sea, brought them through, and he said, I'm bringing you to a promised land, a land of peace and rest from your enemies, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great. Now, there are going to be some battles you'll face, there are going to be some nations and some enemies living in your territory. You just trust me, and I'll get rid of them, and I'll bring you into the promised land. Well, God's people got up to the very border, and God sent 12 spies in to scout out the promised land. And 10 of the 12 spies decided to go their own way. They said, God, we don't trust you. If you send us in there, we're going to die. There are literal giants in there, and we look like grasshoppers before him. If we go in there, we will die. We don't want to go in. We want to do our own thing. Only two people, Joshua and Caleb, trusted God. But because of Israel's disobedience and lack of faith, God sent them to wander around the wilderness for 40 years till the adult generation died off, and he said, I'll bring your kids in there. And so Joshua chapter 3 is 40 years later. Moses has passed on. Joshua, who was there all of those years ago, has stepped in place of Moses. He can see it. He can almost taste it. The promised land is finally in his grasp, and he's ready to lead the people of God into this land. And so then this is what happens, Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure, or 1,000 yards. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before." And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So here they are. They're at the border of the promised land. They're ready to go in. Joshua is the leader, and they cannot wait to get into the land that God promised them. Now, Joshua doesn't know what he's going to face yet. He doesn't know what's coming up. All he knows is there are going to be battles. There are going to be Jericho walls. There are going to be enemies. There are going to be people we have to face, and we need to trust God through it. But he doesn't know what's happening. But he tells the people, this is what you're going to do. When you see the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, wherever they go, you go to. They go to the left, you go to the left. To the right, to the right. They go forward, you go forward. They stop, you stop. Whatever they do, you keep your eyes on them and you focus on them and you go where they go. In fact, they said you need to keep about a thousand yards back so that you can fix your eyes on the priest and the Ark of the Covenant. No matter where they go, that's where you are going. 
Now, what are the priests and the Ark of the Covenant? The priests were Israel's representatives towards God. So they were priests who represented the entire nation towards God carrying this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And what was the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was God's mediated presence among God's people. Usually it sat in the tabernacle in a place called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in once a year to to make atonement for the sins of the people. In fact, later on in Scripture, one of David's young men accidentally touched the side of the Ark of the Covenant, and God killed him right there. This was God's holy presence. And so what do we have a picture of here? What is Joshua telling them to do? He's saying, fix your eyes on the presence of God. Wherever he goes, that's where you're going. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what you see. Fix your eyes on the Lord and go with him. Because you can guarantee that ringing in his ears, playing again and again and again in Joshua's mind were the events of 40 years ago, that he came so close to getting into the promised land, but because God's people took their eyes off of him and saw what was around him, and made their own decision and went their own way, that they went for wilderness wandering and ultimate death. And Joshua is saying, I will not go through this again. You will not go through this again. You will not be like your parents. We are not getting shut out. We are getting into this promised land. I just need you to fix your eyes on the priest and the presence. And as long as we follow him, no matter what battles we face or people are around us, everything is going to be okay. Fix your eyes on the priests and the presence. But you and I, we are in the, the new covenant. See, we, we, we aren't in the old covenant. We know that our hope is not in a physical land or a physical army. We don't even have the Ark of the Covenant. We're not looking for that today. What does this passage have to do with you and I? Well, there's this common saying that says the Old Testament is simply the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is simply the Old Testament revealed. The author of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament is made up of types and shadows that give a picture of things to come, things we can see now in the New Testament. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we can see these fulfillments, we can see these spiritual realities painted in earthly pictures in the Old Testament. So what do we see here? God's people are going into a physical land to have a physical nation with physical borders and physical prosperity where God would rule over them. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know this kingdom is not an earthly kingdom with borders, but a spiritual, invisible kingdom that's in the midst of us, as Jesus says. And that we see that as they follow the priest and the presence, who is that in the New Testament? I think it's a picture of Jesus. Here's why the priests were human representatives to God. Well, who is Jesus? He's 100% man, and he is our high priest. The author of Hebrews says he's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus represents you to God. Jesus is actually praying for you to God the Father on your behalf. But what else do we see? That just as the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God, Jesus is not only 100% man, he's 100% God. That when we see Jesus, we see the divine. 
we see God's presence and that in the person of Christ, man and God have been wedded together. And so the picture that Joshua is giving us in the earthly is what we have in the heavenly and the spiritual, that we are to fix our eyes on the priest and the presence, on the God-man Jesus Christ as he leads us into a spiritual kingdom of life and peace and salvation and rest from our enemies, our enemies being sin and Satan and death. And Joshua knows that when we get into that kingdom, there are going to be battles and you and I are going to face battles too. Not physical armies, not physical Jericho walls, but spiritual battles. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. This is a picture of the life of following Jesus. And so what is Joshua saying to you and I today? He's saying that life in the kingdom better be life fixated on the priest and the presence. It better be life fixated on King Jesus. It better be a life where we say, God, where you go, I'll go. What you say, I'll say, because we've tried this on our own before and it never works out. Jesus, I'm following you. Reminds me a few months ago, we were doing some work on our house and we wanted to put a new sink in our bathroom. And this comes at no surprise to everyone in this room. That's not my natural specialty, but I thought, you know what? I'll just try it. Like we got, let's do this thing. So we went and bought the sink and we're putting it together. And you know, home projects that seem easy always turn into a nightmare where you just like want to rip your eyes out or something. Like you turn into a psycho, you know, because you're like, this should not take this long. And so uh, I'm putting everything together and I realize there's some issue with the piping down below. And so I drive to the store, and I find a part that I think is going to work. I drive back, wrong part. Get in my car, drive back to the store. I find a part that now I think is going to work. Get back, wrong part. I do this again and again and again, and finally I lost it. Like, if I got to drive to the store one more time, I'm turning into a psychopath, okay? I'm going crazy out here. I can't do it anymore. So finally, we call Elizabeth's dad and explain everything to him, and he's like, hey, Here's what I think you should do. You should try this smaller store in town. And uh, the customer service there isn't amazing, but they got some kind of retirement age folks who have been around the block. They know what they're doing. They'll get you the right part that you need, and they'll tell you exactly how to put it in. So sure enough, I walk in. I've got my little pictures on my phone. Hey, man, can you help me figure this out? And he just looks at me, and he's just like... Like nothing. No, how you doing? Good to see you. How can I help you? Just so I'm like, okay, whatever. So I'm following this guy, looking down the aisles to see if they sell a personality because I chip in for this dude. You know what I mean? Like, anyways, so we get to the back aisle, and sure enough, the guy pulls out the part I need, and he's like, this is going to do it for you. I'm like, okay, can you tell me how to put it in? And just cools a cucumber. He walks me step by step. I'll go back, and that was exactly what I needed and exactly what I needed to do. But the thing is this, is, is if I would have kept trying to do this on my own, I would have just lived my life driving back and forth, back and forth, with ever, without ever receiving what I needed. I was ill-equipped to do this thing on my own. And can I tell you something today? That when it comes to matters of spiritual decisions, spiritual warfare, obedience to Christ, dealing with your sin, you are ill-equipped. You do not know what you are doing. Left on your own, you will make a mess of your life. 
We need a good doctrine of sin that says, in my flesh, there is nothing good at all. And apart from Christ, I am nothing. Every day that I do my daily prayers, I actually use a little uh, prayer guide that I go by. And when I get to the point of confession, I, I say, we have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. A little bit of archaic King James language, but I think it, it paints a beautiful picture. There is no health in us. Apart from Christ, there is no health in you. You cannot handle it on your own, and you will make a mess of your spiritual life. Think about this as the Israelites, the first time when they trusted in themselves, it barred them from the promised land and led them to wilderness wandering and death. Before you, you knew Christ, your own self-dependence kept you from the kingdom of God, kept you in sin and condemnation. It wasn't until the Spirit of God con convicted you and broke you and you put all your faith not in yourself but in Jesus that you were saved and entered God's kingdom. Listen to me today. If trusting in yourself kept you outside of God's kingdom, how could trusting in yourself keep you in it? How could it allow you to flourish in it? It simply can't. We are terrible gods. So what are you going through today? Where are you feeling that tension, that tug, that pull, that temptation to go your own way? Is it with sin? Flat out sin, are you feeling that temptation to go back to that lifestyle, to go back to the computer, to go back to dishonesty, to go back to whatever it is, and you're thinking, I'm tired of fighting, I'm tired of wrestling, this will just feel good anyways. Is that you talking or is it Jesus talking? Because if it's you, you're about to make a mess. Maybe it's a step of obedience to Christ. I mean, you can feel God calling you. There's this burning in your heart. I need to share the gospel at my workplace. I need to share the gospel with my family, but you know it'll cost you something. You could get reported to the manager. You could lose a good acquaintance. Maybe they could go off on you. You know that there's a battle that you're facing. Am I gonna trust in myself and stay easy and stay comfortable or step into obedience to God? Because if your heart says, just stay comfortable and easy, that's not God talking, that's you. Maybe you're dealing with health struggles or a struggle in your marriage or a struggle with your children and you really do hear the words of Job's wife, curse God and die, he's left you. You just do what you want. He's not even looking at you. Is that the words of Jesus or the words of your sinful flesh? I can tell you exactly what it is. And Joshua knows this. And he says, look, the last time we trusted in ourselves, it kept us from the kingdom. And when we get to the other side of this water, there are going to be battles and there are going to be armies and there are going to be enemies. But no matter what you do, fix your eyes on the priests and the presence. You've never been this way before and you don't know what you're doing. And I call out to you today, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what battle you're facing. I don't know what decision you have to make, but keep your eyes 
on the priest and the presence. Fix your eyes on the God-man Jesus Christ. You don't know what you're doing, but he does. You've never won a spiritual victory on your own, but he has, and he will lead you to victory every single time. Fix your eyes on the priest and the presence. But God doesn't just want us to trust in him because we make really bad gods. God wants us to trust in him because he's a really good God. And in fact, it goes on in verse 7, and the Lord begins speaking directly to Joshua, and it says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. And the waters that come down from upstream, they shall stand as a heap. So let me review. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Joshua, I'm about to do something miraculous to just get you into the promised land. The next miracle I do is about to be wild, and it's going to serve two purposes. One, Joshua, I'm going to exalt you. Moses, their leader, is gone, and you are the new leader. And with this thing I'm about to do under your direction, you're going to be exalted, and the people are going to know you are a servant of God, and they should follow you and listen to you wherever you tell them to go. And he says, two, I'm going to comfort the people so that they know I will be among them, and without fail, I'll drive out every enemy before them. God is saying that this next event just getting them to step foot into the promised land will sustain them with every fight and every battle and every enemy that they face. This one event, they'll say, if God can do this, he can do anything. If God can do this, I'm following Joshua wherever he goes. And so what he says is that the priests carrying the ark, what they need to do is the Jordan, the Jordan River was the one thing keeping them, barring them from stepping into the promised land. So he says, here's what you're going to do. The priests carrying the ark are going to step foot in the Jordan. And the moment that they do, the flow downstream is going to stop. And in fact, there's going to be this huge heap of water that comes down from where it would normally flow and it would back up. And you're going to be able to let everybody walk free to the other side into the promised land. And everyone's going to remember this. And they're going to know if God can do this, he can do anything. And so this is exactly what happened, beginning in verse 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratim. So the waters that went down into the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed, 
and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So what God said he would do, he did. The priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped foot in the Jordan, and the Jordan stopped. And in fact, the water backed up all the way to this city called Adam, that there is this huge heap of water all the way to Adam. The water was cut off, and God's people stepped foot into the promised land. That the people would forever remember, if God brought me across the Jordan, I'm following Joshua. If God brought me across the Jordan, he's going to win every battle. If God brought me across the Jordan, what can't he do? But as I said, that we are living in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, and that the Old Testament is filled with types and shadows of New Testament realities. And so what do we see here? Well, we see that the priests in the presence, Jesus, are leading us into the the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of life. But what do we know here? That God wants to let everybody know that Joshua is his servant and worthy to be followed. Where do we find a parallel of Joshua in the New Testament? I think, once again, we find it in Christ for a number of reasons. Joshua is a warrior who fights battles, and Jesus is our warrior who conquered sin, death, and hell, and the grave, and Satan. That Joshua is a leader to follow, and Jesus is our leader to follow. But possibly the most convincing evidence I have is the most simple and straightforward. Joshua is a Hebrew name. It just means God saves. Maybe you've heard it used, Yeshua. Well, if you took the name of Joshua and just sort of transliterated it into Greek, that means just turn it into the Greek, basically. Do you know what Joshua comes out to be in the Greek? Jesus. Joshua is Jesus. Jesus is Joshua. Joshua is an earthly picture, an Old Testament picture of Jesus who would come to be exalted and lead us into the promised land. That we have Joshua, son of Nun, but in the New Testament we have Jesus, son of Mary, son of God. But what is the event that brought us into the kingdom that was so miraculous, that was so powerful, that was so mighty, it leaves every Christian going, if Jesus can do that, what can't he do? Well, as we look at the crossing of the Jordan, we get a picture. See, the Jordan was the thing keeping people from kingdom life, keeping people from eternal life. It was water that would swipe them away to certain death, even going down to the Dead Sea, literally. But where was that water coming from? Well, they they tell us, they said when the priests in the present stepped in, the waters backed up all the way to a city called Adam. That the water that barred them from entrance to the kingdom was flowing down from Adam. But the moment that the priests in the presence stepped foot into the water, the deadly waters of Adam had to stop. The moment that the presence of God stepped foot in that river, the water that would bring certain death had to stop. 
I've come to tell you today that the picture of the crossing of the Jordan is the picture of the cross, that the sin and the death coming from Adam had to stop when Jesus stepped in, that he stepped up on that cross bearing your sin and your guilt and your shame, and he rose again from the dead so that you and I could pass through into kingdom life. What was flowing from Adam is no more in Jesus' name. And just as this event serves as a reminder that if God can part the Jordan and bring us through, he can fight every battle. Christ's death and resurrection serves as that reminder for you that if Christ can get up out of the grave, what battle can't he win right now? And so I've come to tell you, if he can part the Red Sea and kill Pharaoh's army, he can sustain you in the wilderness and bring you to the end. Listen to me, if he can stop the Jordan and bring people into the promised land, he can sustain you right now, fight every battle and keep you till the end. If he can get up from a grave and conquer sin and death, what can't he do now? He'll sustain you to the end. If he can take a sinner like you and wash you clean in an altar like this, 30 years ago or 30 days ago, he can sustain you now and keep you to the end. There is nothing our God can't do. If he got up from the grave, who's beating him now? He's already won every victory and every battle for you. Reminds me of what the apostle Paul said in Philippians. I'm convinced that he who began a good work will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus. If he began it like that, he's going to finish it. If he began it with a resurrection, he's going to finish it. And you can trust in him today. So what battle are you facing? Is it a temptation? If he rose from the grave, he can conquer your sin today. Are you facing a difficult decision? If he rose from the grave, I'm following this guy. He's from the Lord. He can give me wisdom. Is, do you need courage to share the gospel then listen to me, Jesus Christ rose from the grave and if he can defeat death, he can give you courage to share the good news. Are you going through a hard time right now physically? If he can rise from the grave, he can heal your body. Are you going through anxiety and mental distress right now? If he can rise from the grave, he can heal your mind. Whatever it is that you need today, if he rose from the grave, what can't our God do? And Christians are called to think back to the death and resurrection of Jesus like we think back to Jordan. If he can part those waters coming from Adam and bring us across dry land, he'll defeat every Jericho wall, every giant that stands in my way, every army, and he'll do the same thing for you. So church, would you stand today? And in a moment, I want us to have an altar call. I want to invite everybody to come down. And I want to invite those of you who need prayer, who need a miracle, who need deliverance today, that, that you would have that opportunity to be prayed for. But before I invite you down, in the midst of that battle, in the midst of that decision, in the midst of that enemy, you are not enough. And for those of you who aren't in a relationship with Jesus, you know you're a sinner. Maybe God is bringing to light in your mind and your heart right now, I've been living in sin and it's done no good for me. Listen to me, you are enough to save yourself. Your sin will destroy you every time. 
Oh, but there's a Jesus who bore the penalty for your sin on a cross, who rose from the grave so that if you would have faith in his name, you could be forgiven and have life forever. And for those of you with any other spiritual battle, you may not be enough. But if he can die and rise again, what can't our God do? And so I ask that you maintain a presence and an atmosphere of faith in this room. Would you fix your eyes on the resurrection? Fix your eyes on a glorified Jesus. And maybe it's for yourself or for somebody else in this room. Have faith that if God can rise again, what can't he do? So I want to ask everybody in the room to step down to the altar. And would you leave just a little bit of extra space at the front? for those who need special prayer, for those who need a touch from God to be able to be prayed for. But would you come down and step down to the altar? If you don't need prayer, raise your hands and sing. But if you do, come on, allow God to move in your life today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 o'clock and 1045. For more information, please visit us at highpraises.org.